In recent days, there's been an awful lot of interest in what China's been up to in the Pacific. There's been all sorts of predictions from different people about what it means. A great deal of concern expressed about, uh, is this a shift in the geopolitics uh, of the Pacific? And how's New Zealand caught up in this as being part of the region? Today, I'm joined by uh, guests on the in the back room of politics. Uh, first is uh, Josie Pagani, a political commentator with a very long history with uh, NGOs engaged in the Pacific. I'm also joined by Mike Gardley, broadcaster, political commentator and columnist, uh, who has in recent days been in the Pacific. So uh, starting with you, um, Mike, tell us about your experience in Suva just recently. Well, it was very serendipitous, Jerry, because uh, I found myself in Fiji wearing my travel media hat and I was actually listening to you uh, on the radio, I think it was on Thursday morning, um, and there was a clip of you in the news, and I suddenly thought, holy Hannah, Fiji's sort of become the the geopolitical fault lines of the world, it would appear. So I was making my way to Suva, and as it was, I was booked in for three nights at the Grand Pacific Hotel, where, of course, we had first of all the visit from the Australian Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, who met all the dignitaries in the same boardroom at the hotel, where just 96 hours later, we had this massive multilateral uh, meeting of Pacific leaders with uh, uh, the Chinese foreign minister. So I really did feel like I had a, a sort of a ringside seat on the bidding war um, and um, uh, the various power plays that were underway. But it was an extraordinary um, encounter with what I would say was raw power, soft power, and um, and and that sort of you know first hand um, move when it comes to trying to get the upper hand of diplomacy. Just anecdotally speaking to a lot of Fijians, um, Penny Wong was incredibly impressive, and I think she has played a um, a key role in perhaps averting uh, any hasty sign up uh, to China's uh, common development vision, as perhaps Minister Wang would have liked. And I think that's a a very important point. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. So so just to background that, we had Kurt Campbell, who's the the, uh, US representative, uh, doing a whistle stop through the Pacific uh, recently. Very little coverage of that. And then we had, of course, the uh, decision by the Solomon Islands to enter into that uh, bilateral arrangement with China that included security, uh, policing and various other things that we might find uh, a little interesting. Uh, But in the end, all of these Pacific governments are looking for how they move uh, the development of their people and the opportunities for their people. Josie, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned Penny Wong, Mike. I mean, she's only been in the job nine days and she's already done two trips to the region, to the Pacific. So that's pretty remarkable. So that tells you that, you know, a new Labour government coming into power in Australia has identified the Pacific and the region as the new frontier, if you like, the new sphere of influence around geopolitical struggles. And so they've made it an absolute priority. And and you have to ask, you know, have we in New Zealand at the moment? Um, you know, I mean, our minister, Nanai Mahuta, has, has done one trip to the Pacific. Now, of course, COVID got in the way, I know, but one trip to Fiji since she's been minister, she's been minister for a few years now, you know, that's that's not really that's not really signaling to the Pacific that you, that you think the region is a priority. And and I think also, and I know Jerry, you and I've talked about this before, that there's a kind of, you know, 
tilted head of compassion approach to the Pacific, often from donors like New Zealand and Australia. You know, we have to be really careful that we don't patronise the region. I actually think the Pacific's doing a pretty good job at the moment of trying to manage these different political drivers. And, you know, we tend to kind of go in there and, and assume that we're there to help them. I actually think they can help us work through some of this stuff. I mean, that they've been trying to juggle China and the influence of, of, of donors like us in Australia and the US for a long time. They're trying to work it out. They're asking for us to help. What they're not asking us to do is to tell them how to run their own business. So, you know, we can't go in there and go, this is who you should and shouldn't take money off or from. This, it's not our job to tell, tell them who they can and can't do deals with. It is our job to make sure the Pacific gets the best kind of deal from whoever that they're doing deals with. Yeah, I think the leadership in the Pacific at the moment is very strong uh, across all of the nations. And the 10 nations that China uh, is sort of got on their sites because I've got diplomatic relations with them, all very well led. And uh, quite a few of those leaders were educated either in New Zealand, Australia or the United Kingdom. So they have a, a, a full understanding and sense of uh, the, the political cultural values that uh, that we place on the region. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't help uh, uh, wondering what it is that we've let go. Um, Mike, I was just noticing on my sheet here the, the 14, uh, uh, sorry, point 14 of the new document that China put in, in front of them is hold seminars on governance and development planning for Pacific Island countries. 15 is hold training programs for young diplomats in the uh, uh, Pacific Islands. And 16 is to provide 500 university places in China for Pacific Island students for the next each of the next five years, 2,500 people. A further 3,000 human resource training jobs over the same period of time. So these are big, serious things that you can't uh, blame these Pacific leaders for at least having a look at. Oh, actually, sorry, Mike, before you ask that also, Derek, um, potentially access to the Chinese market for Pacific goods. Well, well that's going to come to that. You're jumping ahead of us, Josie. Mike. <laughs> well, it's interesting, yeah, because one thing I noticed that um, in Fiji, a lot of the locals were really anxious to hear from when Penny Wong was uh, in town was obviously a bit like New Zealand with um, seasonal workers. There are a lot of Fijians who um, have like a seasonal worker program with Australia. And a really big beef for Fijians has been they want uh, their families to be able to go and live in Australia at the same time as their seasonal worker family member is working there. And Penny Wong said yes to it, which I thought was quite extraordinary. I don't know if New Zealand would be so um, open on that, but I wondered if that sort of overture was extended because China is offering more and more uh, treats and, and, and some of those scholarships and university places you refer to, Jerry, is probably an example of that. I'm told there's only one scholarship available to the Pacific Islands out of New Zealand at the moment. Now, I'll, I'll stand corrected on that, but that's uh, all I've been able to find to this point. But, I mean, look, you look at the entire population of the Pacific, you know that they're not all going to desert. I think we could do a lot more. We've got labour shortages in this country. Uh, we've had, you know, sure, we've had COVID and we've got to work our way through it. But even the way there's been a, a restriction uh, and a sort of drip feeding of the regional seasonal workers who come into the country, I think we've got a lot of work to do. 
Yeah. One, one thing I was really struck by just uh, reading some of the uh, reportage out of the Pacific in the last few days is, you know, being part of the media, um, I accept that the media always uh, doesn't necessarily get it right. But look back to that um, horrendous uh, volcano eruption in Tonga. I don't recall any reportage in New Zealand about the rapid response from China to Tonga. Yet if you go through and look what China offered Tonga in the preceding days, it was massive. There was there were even naval ships going into Nukualofa or close to uh, Chinese naval ships bringing supplies. None of that was covered in New Zealand. So I actually wonder if... Um, <laughs> We don't really get the full picture from our media as to exactly what's already going down on the ground when it comes to the various spheres of influence and the contest, you know, when it comes to uh, the major players. Josie, I think that's your point, wasn't it, that we've taken this sort of paternalistic uh, expectation that uh, those countries would simply follow where we asked them to go. Yeah, I mean, there are two key leaders at the moment in the, in the Pacific region, I think. One is Prime Minister Fiamme from Samoa and the other is Mark Brown from Cook Islands. Both of them, they both spoke at our conference last year at the Council for International Development, which is for the uh, you know, umbrella organisation for New Zealand's aid agencies. And they were, they were fantastic. I mean, they just challenged New Zealand and Australia, because Australia was part of it, um, to, to use COVID, you know, don't waste good crisis, use COVID as an opportunity to accelerate change in the way that we deal with the Pacific. And what they mean by that is, you know, move away from this kind of beneficiary model of aid and, and you know, move towards something which is far more um, empowering for the Pacific. So for a start, use local systems, um, you know, listen to what locals are saying in, in the Pacific, country by country, what is it that people are saying are their priorities? So yes, climate change is a priority, but actually when you look at the polls across all Pacific countries, the top three priorities, pretty much the same as they are for New Zealand, um, jobs, have I got access to good health care? Have I got access to teachers and good education for my kids? So, you know, when you look at those three things, you're exactly right, Jerry. What what are we offering that is giving access to markets for Pacific goods that is allowing them to almost be like a Pacific union? I mean, I think it's time to even revisit that idea. It's been around for a long time, I know. But, you know, if you've got the EU is the, is the biggest trade block in the world. The Pacific is trying, and Prime Minister Fiamme has called for a regional conference on this. Let's come together as a region. You know, we're, we're stronger together than we are separate. So, so can the Pacific Union, can the Pacific be like a Pacific Union trade bloc that has far more oomph and negotiating power, whether with China, whether with us, whether the US or, or, or the UK or whoever? And, and that's what they're looking for. They want a different model of development. Yeah, well, as you know, I don't like that word aid. Um, it's something that irritates me because it is very much like uh, here is a bandage and, uh, you know, you go and sort yourself out. Um, I don't like the word development either because it uh, tends to be sort of a catch-all for anything you like. And so I, I agree with you. I think there is a lot of space we could go to. And I think New Zealand has dropped the ball. We've got Pacer Pacific, which is New Zealand, Australia, and those Pacific communities. We haven't really done a lot with it. That is a trade uh, um, uh, facilitation arrangement. But here we have now um, China coming along and saying, well, actually, we want to give you a free trade deal as well. Ten countries, just like that. Small populations, sure. 
But, you know, look at all the, the impediments that we put up uh, for Pacific product coming into New Zealand. It's quite extraordinary. We've got a massive trade imbalance uh, out of I New find, Zealand to the Pacific. I find it absolutely baffling <clears throat> that the South Pacific produces such incredible fruit, for example, you know, bananas, you name it. Uh, yet bananas in our supermarkets are coming from uh, Central America. I don't understand that, Jerry. It's all the phytosanitary <laughs> stuff. And, we, you know, we would be better to facilitate uh, the, uh, you know, fumigation of, of product, stuff like that, uh, to, to let that happen. It's a much better concept than, you know, giving people, uh, you know, a few dollars to go and sort of, I don't know, do whatever they want with. It's sort of... Uh, that yeah. self-sufficiency that and the pride thing. And I think, you know, it sits behind it too, uh, Josie. It seems to me China has treated these Pacific leaders as leaders of countries of, of with the level of respect that they deserve for such because they represent the people of those countries. Where, you know, we sort of we sort of don't, you know, it's sort of second level sort of stuff. And I think uh, a lot of work needs to be done. It is typified by the minister's uh, lack of contact with the Pacific, notwithstanding COVID. There's other ways you can contact and despite what she's saying, there hasn't been a great deal of it. But it also goes deep into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, who have this sort of, uh, you know, Europe focus, which uh, just has not been able to be broken for years. And I, and I think, you know, let's not forget, I mean, China and the Pacific has had, you know, also a negative impact on many of the, of the debt levels of Pacific countries. And they're very aware of this. You know, I mean, that uh, debt levels have, have, have reached extraordinary heights, especially through COVID. And even our Treasury is saying to the New Zealand government now, um, OK, you've given $75 million towards debt relief to the Pacific. We don't think that's going to be enough because these countries are really struggling. I mean, you've got countries where, you know, between 50 and 70% of GDP uh, was tourism and tourism has gone. You know, it's not coming back for a decade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right, Jerry. What what is it that we're offering that can that can, that is a, a big enough offer to really be a game changer in the Pacific? Um, and it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to do things differently. And Pace Plus, you mentioned the Pace Plus deal. I mean, it's it's um, it, there's certainly a potential there. I think we should be really doubling down. I think there's a twenty million dollar fund. With that, with that you know, trade deal. Sorry, I dropped my computer. Trade deal. Um, you know, which you know is both a, a trade deal and a development deal. There's about twenty million dollars to help the Pacific set up its customs system, set up its biosecurity system, to have common legislation across the region so that it can trade as a bloc. Yeah, Tracy. Um, Tracy uh, sorry, um, it's five years old now, and it just yeah. hasn't, hasn't been done. And you ask who was responsible for that? But look, um. You know, we, we just need to come back a little bit to the uh, security stuff, which is what really bothers people, I think, about uh, China's engagement there. We can't compete with them on the dollars or the capacity. I mean, taking, uh, you know, even if we were to do it on a pro, uh, pro rata basis, the numbers of, of scholarships, et cetera, they're going to be able to offer makes a difference. The establishment of Confucius schools inside uh, our Pacific Island countries all makes a difference. That's hard to compete against. What we do have is the long history we have. When the last major geopolitical shift in the Pacific was the arrival of Captain Cook and I I guess what we're looking at now is understanding a bit how uh, some of those uh, countries might have felt uh, at that time. But we've got to make the best of this. 
So the Pacific Islands Forum was established in the 1980s as a place for Pacific leaders to have dialogue directly, leader to leader, with larger countries like Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and they were all to sit around a table as equals and to discuss the issues that affected the area. You've got the Forum Fishing Line, uh, a fishing arrangement that came out of that, uh, and that's something else China wants to get into, looking at how we sort of carve up the oceans, manage it, as they would put it, make better use or more rational use of the resources. That's a very uh, subjective way of looking at it. There is other aspects of the of the forum, but it, it hasn't functioned properly for quite a long time. Do you see any future for that body, given your, your, your suggestion that we have some kind of pan-Pacific trading arrangements? Well, the problem with the Pacific Island Forum at the moment, as you know, is it's, it's, it's kind of split between, you know, Melanesia, Micronesia and Polynesia at the moment with a big stoush between those countries. And, you know, it, and it does seem, you know, that it gets paralysed like many of these international organisations, which it, which it is, it's a regional organisation, it gets paralysed with its own internal politics. So, you know, either it needs to reform, like the UN needs to reform, like much of the multilateral system needs to reform, um, or there needs to be, I think, a new mechanism. And I think it's going to come from the leadership of people like Prime Minister Fiamme, like Prime Minister Mark Brown, um, and and also from from um, other countries across Melanesia and Micronesia, to come up with perhaps a different a different process that's going to do that. Because I do think there is, you know, I mean, the problem with a, with a pan-Pacific, sort of Pacific Union idea is that Australia and New Zealand have to come into it. And as you say, Jerry, they have to come into it as equals. You know, they can't, they actually have to be part of a, of a, of a trade block in the Pacific. So they have to be convinced, Australia and New Zealand have to be convinced that there's something in it for them to come into a trade block like that. I, I saw a really interesting statistic the other day um, that I think it's like, you know, the number of businesses, New Zealand businesses that do business in the Pacific, it's, one of, it, it's, it's more than um, the number of businesses doing business in China. Now, obviously, you know, that there are, we, have, we are a country of small and medium businesses, so there's a lot of small businesses in the Pacific, but that's extraordinary. We like doing business in the Pacific region. Yeah, there's a, an issue of scale there. Mike, I was interested that, you know, when the foreign minister was asked about what she thought about all this, she's saying, firstly today, uh, well, we're not going to be desperate and the Australians appear desperate. I think that's a, a really sad characterisation because I think the, the opening statements about uh, Penny Wong, the new Australian foreign minister, probably putting a degree of caution into the heads of some of the uh, um, uh, people who sat around the table with Minister Wang Yi uh, without without telling them what to do uh, was, was a very important move. And it's obviously she considers it good enough to keep going there. So, you know, we've got our foreign minister saying, well, um, we're off to the Pacific Island Forum meeting Question: When is it? Currently not set down. Uh, will it be held up because some countries have got uh, COVID restrictions? Probably. So it's kind of on the never never. This document in front of uh, uh, the, the leaders of the Pacific at the moment uh, has a proposal that China and the Pacific Island countries hold a foreign ministers meeting uh, on a regular basis. That's the PIF. And yet, so it's not working in one place. They're offering it on as this other with um, essentially the two bigger partners in the PIF Pacific Island Forum cut out, New Zealand, Australia, China back in there. They want to appoint a special envoy into the Pacific Island Affairs countries. We had uh, Shane Jones there for fisheries at one point. Uh, the current government's got uh, um, 
Louisa Wall there now looking at uh, uh, LBGT uh, issue, uh, issues. Yep. Um, but those those aren't really they aren't going to either of those. Well, fisheries yep. is probably important, but th- you, you need that bigger, broader connecting thing that's not well, out thought, there at the moment. I, yeah, I thought the point uh, you made a couple of days ago that uh, in the wake of the Chinese foreign minister's sweep through the Pacific that um, Nanaia Mahuta should be on a plane to go and do a bit of a, a follow-up, you know, and um, um, meet with uh, various Pacific leaders. I thought that was absolutely spot on, and I can't see any reason why she isn't. I think the associate foreign minister's on his way, is he not? Yeah, but he's, he's not going there for this. He's going for no. some conference or something where he's a keynote speaker speaker or something, which, you know, yeah. keynote speaker is a much overused term these days. Uh, uh, he'll be speaking on a panel somewhere or something. But so he's not there for that yeah. purpose. I wonder if part of the problem, and I think there has been some discussion about this in the media in recent days, is uh, has Nanaia Mahuta simply got too much on her plate, given the complete shambles that Three Waters is? Um, you know, should a foreign affairs minister at this time uh, be firmly focused on that one portfolio? Is it ridiculous to have uh, the local government portfolio with her at the moment, given what the government's trying to push through? And it's not just that, Mac. It's that there are, I think this is right, Jerry. there are eight... Basically, eight ministers that uh, that sit in that foreign affairs and trade um, sphere, right? Yeah, and yeah. That's way too many. And you know, we used to have a minister of foreign affairs and trade. I know we we, we split that in the nineties, but I think given that there is so much volatility on the global stage at the moment, whether it be COVID, whether it be war in Ukraine, um, the, the, the rising tensions between the US and China, um, that we really need a full-time foreign affairs minister. And we need a, I actually think trade is becoming more and more a tool in in the moral um, agenda of foreign affairs. You know, and I think that's a good thing. You know, it's not just about trade, it's about environmental protections, it's about labor rights, it's about um, uh, you know the way in which we deal with our neighbours in terms of our values and our morality. If you go, if you go right into it, you can pretty much uh, these days get a link between almost every portfolio of government uh, to the other some way. Yeah. And, and if you yeah. if you carry that out too far, you end up with a dilution of responsibility, dilution of decision making, and therefore nothing much happening. And I think that's what we're seeing exactly here. Uh, we do need a foreign minister focused on uh, our New Zealand's foreign affairs. We're a small country, a trading nation. We enjoy a lifestyle here far in advance of what our domestic economy alone could give us. And so those foreign uh, relations are important. Our relationship with China is extremely important. Uh, what I think is at stake here is the uh, potential for the the uh, over time uh, the the cultural dominance that perhaps uh, uh, you know, alongside their local um, uh, cultures, uh, European culture has is, is is and that's that's I think what is at the heart of what worries people. I know that there are the the um, uh, the desktop hawks out there who say it's you know they want to establish a massive military sort of presence across the Pacific. Um, that, that you're not convinced. I'm I'm not so convinced about that. If you really go down that track, then they're a long way towards that because you look at the Belt and Road Initiative. I think that's yep. probably and historically will be seen as one of the most brilliant diplomatic uh, uh, economic tools that's ever been devised. Part you know post Marco Polo, um, it uh, <laughs> it really does. 
does engage so many countries. And, you know, they're able to look at when they're going to those specific countries right now with these new deals saying, oh, well, actually, we've got all these projects that are part of Belt and Road in your country. Let's wind them into this, uh, um, you know, multilateral deal and boost them up a bit and make them bigger. Yeah. It's very compelling. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. you know, the, there's, uh, you know, always two ways to conquer any country. One is, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, conquest that uh, or attempted conquest that um, uh, Putin's engaging in in the Ukraine that's not going terribly well for him. Or there is the economic dependence and dominance. And that's yes. uh, where a lot of the world is starting to head uh, in their relationships with China. One aspect we haven't touched on, which I'm keen to hear, Jerry and Josie, what you think about this. I was intrigued that uh, when Minister Wing was meeting with uh, Henry Puna uh, from the Pacific Islands Forum um, in Suva over the weekend, like a lot of other Pacific leaders, Henry Puna said, you know, climate change is our is our primary concern. Um, and he was saying that face-to-face with the Chinese foreign minister. What I can't reconcile in my head, given there's been a lot of flack directed towards Australia under the Morrison government and, uh, you know, whether they really stepped up um, effectively on the climate change question in the eyes of the Pacific Islands. Well, do they really think China is a leader on climate change, given... Their stated goal at this point in time is carbon neutrality by 2060. I, I, I just thought, you know, does Henry Puna and friends think that China is going to be the great white knight on climate change? Well, yeah. I think what that shows you, Mike, is that, you know, yes, climate change is a priority in the Pacific, but, I mean, you know, to illustrate to illustrate the, the problem that I think they've got is that I was, I was at a conference with a Pacific colleague of mine and it was a former prime minister of a small country stood up and started and, and started talking about the existential threat of climate change in the Pacific and everybody at this aid conference clapped and agreed um, and my Tongan friend next to me who runs an aid agency said and that's why he's an ex-prime minister so it's not that climate change isn't an existential crisis in the in, in the Pacific it's that what what the citizens on the ground want to hear more about is what are you going to do to make sure I've got a job and a future and that my kids are okay and you know that they're healthy and they've got a good education and all of that so if if as a Pacific leader you're not talking to that right. what happens is you're getting picked off by and um, you know there's an elite in the Pacific that picked off by Brussels and Geneva to come and represent the Pacific in Europe and to talk to the climate change crisis they're not necessarily reflecting some of the issues on the ground for, for citizens living in the Pacific and so I think that's an opportunity for New Zealand to go yes we support your your, your uh, uh, we support the any, what you're doing to, to, to mitigate and, and address climate change, but also we're going to deliver on these other things: jobs, access to health, um, and access to good education. I think it speaks also, Mark. My, oh, I hate that term. Actually, I won't say that because I don't like saying things speak to something they don't. Um, <laughs> we observe something in something, something that someone has said. Um, <laughs> if uh, if China were to uh, get to their goal by sixty sixty, the consequence of that, yeah, twenty sixty, which is only forty years away, forty yeah. thirty eight years away, um, just as long as you've been alive, Mike, and it um, it would be. Um, Along the way, the reduction of emissions in a world sense would be absolutely enormous. So uh, you think of the size of that 
population. Between India and um, China, they have one third of the world's population, and they're two of the biggest emitters out there. So uh, that, that we shouldn't we should reduce that goal. But I agree with I agree with um, Josie. I, I don't like saying it because you know I've got to talk to a lot of these people. But there is a there's a kind of a you know topic of the day and. Uh, and the stuff where you can be nice and safe and say something and because not many people know an awful lot about it. And I don't think I could tell either of you what you should be doing in your life to reduce your emissions. Uh, but And no one can tell me. I've asked that of everybody. And they sort of go on about, well, um, you know, electric cars and stuff like that. Too big. And it doesn't affect these people. But they do live with uh, the plenty of sea level rise in many of those countries. Yeah, but let's be honest, the Pacific is not – even considering doing deals with China really about climate change, what they're, what they're tempted by is the offer of cheap loans, which puts them into debt, um, uh, you know, access to the Chinese market and all the other things that you mentioned before, Jerry, in terms of, you know, education, infrastructure and so on. Um, what, what I hear, what I've been hearing for the last few years from Pacific countries, and this is from communities as well as political leaders, is, you know, help us take advantage of this offer without getting into debt uh, or, or debt that we can't manage and, and help us understand how we can get the most out of this deal. Don't tell us we can't take money off China. Don't tell us who we can and can't take money off. And so I think we've got to get much more savvy about, first of all, if, if the Pacific decide that China is going to be part of the region's future, then that's their decision. China will be part of the Pacific's future. So therefore, we have to we have to work really hard to help them manage the risks of that, and to work with them, and also um, to come up as Australia, I think, is doing. They're not desperate. They're being they're being a clever and b principled. They're going right. We think there's risks for you doing deals with China. We can offer you something better. That's what we've got to be part of. We've got Jerry, to be better than China. <laughs> Jerry, if you become foreign affairs minister again next year. Uh, will you be advocating New Zealand increases its aid, and I'll use that term loosely, aid budget to the Pacific? Uh, look, uh, the first uh, trip offshore I took as a, a minister uh, was in the Pacific for the very reason that I think New Zealand needed to strengthen its relationships way back then. It's four, five years ago, actually, about now. And uh, I think we need to develop, we, we, we put out a lot of money in the Pacific, around about $500 million last year. I think uh, we need to look at things like a development bank concept uh, that allows a, a multiplying of things, that allows a manageable uh, sort of debt profile for some of those countries uh, because we can't just turn up and say oh look hang on you need a new port here we can't even do that for ourselves so you know we, we've got to be be uh, uh, sensible about what we do but it's also about the engagement and the uh, uh, the empowerment and the respect that we show as well remember too that New Zealand is a Pacific country and New Zealand has a very very strong relationship with China there are millions of people in this country literally uh, who go to work today uh, somewhat dependent on our relationship with the Chinese economy. What perhaps, um, without wanting to sound too kumbaya, what a viable scenario in the medium term to try and diffuse a few tensions on the geopolitical front beat for New Zealand to perhaps pursue, alongside Australia, co-funded uh, economic development or assistance projects with China in the Pacific? We've done some of those. Um, uh, so uh, certainly in the time that uh, of our government, we had a, a water project in Tonga uh, and uh, there was a project of a similar type in the Cook Islands. 
we know that uh, we can cooperate on solar energy throughout the Pacific. Uh, lots of things like that. I don't. I wouldn't discount that at all. And in fact, uh, last evening I was. Um, and this is the thing you got to remember. We're still talking very much with everyone. The Chinese ambassador in New Zealand. I've had two conversations with him in the last uh, week, uh, and even last evening, we're talking about well, is there something that we could start to work on in that regard? Um, so you know, we, we don't we don't doubt the fact that they want the Chinese culture to be far more uh, dominant and upfront throughout the world, one way or another. Don't lose sight of that. Uh, but in the end, uh, we've got to recognise where we've got ourselves and uh, how we can cooperate to, to make things uh, better for everyone in the future. I don't think it's an either or, Mike, either. I mean, I do think we need we need to increase our aid in the Pacific. I mean, you know, mostly because it is such a volatile um, uh, natural environment. I mean, with cyclones, with the volcano in Tonga and so on. Um, but but also since COVID and also since you, the war in Ukraine, which has obviously created huge um, food insecurity, given that it's what thirty about 40 percent of the world's wheat um, and grain. You know, that's impacting on food prices in the Pacific as well at a time where it was already coping with the after, aftermath of COVID. You know, so we're seeing, I know, in aid agencies, an increase in malnutrition, increase in child stunting. I mean, you know, quite horrific um, um, anecdotal stories of, of, of people going without food. You know, so this is pretty basic in the Pacific. So I, I do think that there's a, there's a role for aid. But you're absolutely right. And what we're talking about and what people like Prime Minister Fiamme and, and Prime Minister Mark Brown are talking about is, you know, we need to wean ourselves off dependency ultimately. And what does that look like and how can New Zealand help? So, and, you know, yeah, we've got to do more, whether it's through Pace Plus, whether it's through trade, whether it's through uh, um, different forums out of the Pacific Island Forum to help elevate the voice of the Pacific. I don't know, but it, there needs to be a different framework for sure. So uh, let's wind it up uh, if we can. Mike, uh, 30 seconds. Uh, what should New Zealand do from here and how worried should we be uh, about the, the willingness of Pacific leaders to uh, at least look at these you know, very generous packages that are on, on display from China uh, as opposed to the sort of indifferent and slightly colonialistic approach from uh, the United States? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly would hope and trust that uh, Pacific leaders calmly consider and contemplate any potential fish hooks and whatever they are signing. Um, I think, yep. Uh, look at the Christchurch City Council at the moment, Jerry. My goodness, if they were a Pacific Island nation and China said, look, we'll fund your stadium, we'll build it too, I think there'd be plenty of people at the council who'd say, oh, yes, come on, take us over, do it. No, do it no, Mike, Mike, they wouldn't. <laughs> they'd, call in, they'd call in consultants to, form a, to, to give them advice about forming a committee that might then That's give right. them advice about whether the consultants have done a good job and at that point, they might think about whether or not they should consider whether or not they get another group in to consider whether or not they accept the offer. And then put it out to public consultation. Of course, of course. But enough about the South Island. I'm very sorry. But yes, no, all I'm saying is that um, I think whenever you've got a major power with an open checkbook, um, the sweet seduction runs very deep. But I do hope that uh, cool, calm considerations are made over any agreements. I certainly think it's uh, in the world's interests that China is respected as a major player, that uh, we find a way to coexist. 
to cooperate uh, for the benefit of the wider Pacific. Um, and yeah, the last thing I would want to see is the uh, arrival or proliferation of military bases from China in the South Pacific. I hope you're right, Jerry. I hope that's not part of the plan. Well, I certainly agree with that. And that was, uh, for your benefit, Josie, a South Island 30 seconds. Can you do it in 30 seconds? A bit of a quick wind up? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is go to the Pacific in person. That's a priority. Absolutely. So our minister's got to get on a plane and, and go and visit people and talk to people. And that comes to the second point, which is you've got to listen to the Pacific. What is it that the Pacific is telling us are their priorities right now? Um, and, and I think that... That also comes to the point that we have to be really careful as, as New Zealanders and, and New Zealand not to feel like we have to choose between two superpowers. That that never ends up well for small countries. We've got to find a, we've got something to offer the US and we've got something to offer China. So, you know, we want to trade with China. We we align with the values of the US. We want we want to work with the Pacific. So, you know, working our way through that is going to be tough, but we, we do have a unique role to play in the Pacific. You're right, Jerry. We are a Pacific nation. Um, you know, we, we these are our not just our friends, these are our cousins and colleagues and 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 whanos. So we can do something that no one else can do in the Pacific. We do have we do have a different um, set of power skill uh, tools that we can use and power that we can use, we should be using it. But the, the key thing is get to the Pacific and the second thing is listen. Yeah, thanks, Josie. We have been listening. It was a very long North Island, 30 seconds. So can I thank you both for being in the back room of politics today for your your thoughts? Uh, this is no doubt going to be something that uh, New Zealand is, is going to be uh, dealing with for quite some time. Uh, I think we've got to deal with it in a calm and, and rational way, but I totally agree with you, Josie. Don't sit on the sidelines and let it happen. You've got to be out there knowing at least what's going on and how people are thinking and working out how best this New Zealand, this New Zealand our country we love, positions itself uh, as a South Pacific nation. Thank you very much to both of you.